I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. It is such a pleasure to be joined today by Rivka Galchin, who writes regularly for The New Yorker, whose editors selected her for their list of 20 under 40 American fiction writers in 2010. Her debut novel, Atmospheric Disturbances, and her story collection, American Innovations, were both New York Times best books of the year. She received an MD from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and her new novel is called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Welcome, Rivka. Thank you so much for having me, Maris. Oh, such such a joy. Um, so tell me, how you decided to write a novel about Johannes Kepler's mother. Yeah, it was not a plan. I never, <laughs> I never in my life planned on writing a historical novel, first of all. And I never, I was actually working on a different novel altogether. But um, I was, you know, everyone has their stress reading. Um, and for some reason, like my reading for the past few years was a lot of scientific biography. I just found like, um, I found it really interesting and really soothing. And also it was almost a way to process history and even the present moment, but by triangulating it into the past because so many of these scientists' lives were uh, you know, basically bullied by politics and history and circumstance. So yeah. I, I was really just sort of reading for pleasure. Um, and I really wanted to read a biography of Kepler and because he's such an interesting figure he's a seminal figure but but it was actually quite difficult there, there's actually not a great biography in English of Kepler so um, there's a sort of foundational or modern foundational biography in German from the 1950s which was translated um, but it's not really like a it's like interesting but I, I was looking for something else. And, and the best thing I could find um, was actually a book by the scholar Ulinka Rublak, 
and it was called The Astronomer and the Witch. And it wasn't really about Kepler. It was about his <laughs> mother. Um, but I thought, well, this is like the best thing I'm going to find about Kepler. I'll, I'll learn a little bit about Kepler. And um, I was absolutely like seized when I read that book. It was just, I don't know, everything else fell away. There were a lot of things I like feelings I had while I was reading that book and one that was like strange and took me by surprise was I was reading it with almost with a sense of suspense like is she a witch like I really had that emotion <laughs> even though you know that's absurd and I didn't even what what does that question even mean but I remember like having that feeling of and and that like told me something that even I had that feeling and that was also part of what connected me to to her story and interestingly for you know literally hundreds of years and even in the kind of seminal biography um, from the 1950s they kind of edited out the whole thing that happened with his mother because it was so shameful yeah. uh, it was like a stain on his personality <laughs> or a stain on his record and and even his biographer in the 20th century writes like a small bit and and there's like a little part where he says I thought about leaving this out but for completeness I kept it in <laughs> and it's I mean in, in the novel of course this affects his mother and her entire family it affects uh, all of the Keplers <laughs> absolutely like all of the Keplers are of course they won they they have been it sounds like they were a kind family and they they didn't abandon their mother and they tried to help their mother um and of course, their, their livelihoods, reputations, financial situation were also uh, completely threatened uh, by the accusations against their mother. So they were not um, invulnerable in any way. One of the things I, I went back and tried to read up on Kepler, and one of the things that really struck me was that I didn't realize that in the early 1600s, astronomy and astrology were somewhat interchangeable, which seems like a really great lens through which to view your novel. Yeah, no, it was such a like, I loved sort of immersing myself in that time period because kind of magic and science were not uh, totally separate. Uh, they're not really totally separate now either. <laughs> Every time I see a magnet, I think, come on, like, <laughs> I, I, like um, so and, and it was also like interesting because a lot of the magic was kind of uh, almost like a banal burden for Kepler because although he was definitely like, he did horoscopes for himself and his mom when he was like a teenager, um, quite kind of quite brutal, honest horoscopes for, the, for both of them. <laughs> but as he grew older, he, he, he had a, a different relationship to astrology, but he made his money. That's how, that's how he made his money was kind of doing these table, astrological tables and astrological readings for people with, with money. So I just found that interesting that he had, he was sort of like stuck with this side gig, which was actually his primary gig of doing this thing that he increasingly felt was a waste of his um, time. So that was also very interesting um, to learn about and to learn that he was a, he was a nobody from nowhere. You know, right. he, that was, that wasn't actually something I knew. I guess I should have known that about him, but you know, it was quite moving. 
Yeah. And I, there's, Katarina has a, a line about how people love starry explanations um, for mundane things. And I, I, I love that. I mean, yes, we're, we're still there. <laughs> exactly. We still, we still want the ennobled uh, explanation of kind of what's happening to us, um, as opposed to the, the slightly more grounded one. So tell me about developing the character of Katarina. And you know, she's smart and she's loud and she makes her presence known, which obviously means she's a witch. Exactly. <laughs> so it's funny. I mean, I of course, because she was a real person, I, you know, I had all those kind of um, I don't know, but you know, quite predictable anxieties about um about getting her about about knowing her, accessing her. Um, but ultimately they kind of fell away. Um, and I found, I was pro, I, I don't really know, but I just found like she seemed very clear to me. I was just, you, you know, the Rublak book gives you a lot of details of what she faced in her life. She was almost the oldest woman um, in town. She had been earning her own living for decades and decades. That's that was not standard at the time and that was not easy at the time. And she was illiterate um, and all these things sort of came and she had a son who was a genius. So all these <laughs> things sort of came together. And I sort of thought, I think that, you know, I connected to her as a woman who was quite capable and quite confident, but also like, I guess we use that phrase and mo the modern phrase would be someone who doesn't read the room. I just saw her as someone who doesn't like read the room so well. So in that way can kind of participate unintentionally in her own persecution um, because she has, in my mind, that's kind of personality I do associate with kind of mathematicians and physicists, although of course it's a bit of a generalization where a kind of faith that the truth matters, that something being true is persuasive. <laughs> Yeah. That if you're accurate, uh, you know, you know, things will follow from that accuracy. And that's, of course, like not a very, that's not human experience. No. And I don't want to be like, especially now. Especially now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but there's that indignity of having to take fools seriously. Yeah, and that's sort of like that double bind where when someone makes an absurd accusation towards her, she's damned if she responds and she's mm -hmm. damned if she doesn't respond. So already, like if someone tomorrow says, you know, you know, Ripka, you know, kills baby narwhals and eats them, <laughs> it's not like <laughs> anywhere for me to go with it. It's just kind of on some level, it's going to stick with me because even people defending me are reiterating. I don't think she kills baby <laughs> So I feel like she's in that bind, but of course it's like much more consequential uh, for her than it would be for me. Yeah, and of course, I mean, and this is something we've seen before, but it, you really hammer it home in the novel that accusations of witchcraft can just span whatever. <laughs> it could be a feeling in the gut. It can be like, oh, my leg hurt. <laughs> she was near. Yeah, no, and it, and it's sort of, that's like part of the historical record that both surprised and didn't surprise me. Um, mm -hmm. Just that on the one hand, 
Um, what women and children say is uh, sort of not to be taken seriously and is supposed to be dismissed in court. On the other hand, um, kind of what anyone says sort of sticks, you know, that they felt uncomfortable, that she sort of stared at me in a strange way. All these things which you assume are true. They probably did feel uncomfortable. (laughs) She probably did stare at them in a strange way. Um, And the idea that, uh, I don't know, the, the idea that this has to be this is going to be metabolized as something very real since of course the other thing about writing this book was being in touch with how difficult life was at that time just you know children died all the time babies died all the time people didn't understand had illnesses that they had even less understanding of than we have now animals died crops failed um it was just such a difficult time. So the kind of magnetism of certain explanations, it's funny, like I have such a hard time connecting to or having sympathy for present day irrationality, but it was almost as if by going through the estrangement of going back in time, I was like sort of able to view some of the people who kind of throw her under the bus, as they say, mm-hmm. um, I was sort of able to understand them a little bit. Like she, she has um, a tailor who, yeah, I guess you would say she's sort of friends with them and the tailor yeah. and his wife, they're, they're, they're sort of friends. Um, but, you know, they go through a terrible, they, they lose two children in a small space of time and in and, and a quite terrible way. Um, and, and, you know, and she tries to help and of course, you know, and give advice on how to care for them. And, and you can kind of understand how they might sort of say, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if she was sort of giving us advice in goodwill, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was, it was an interesting kind of ethical, emotional experience to, to fail in the present sense, but sort of like travel to the past to try and learn something um yeah and she she had a way of my read of it of course was that she knew exactly what she was talking about in terms of healing and um which plants to use and you, you have to wonder like who wants to hear this who's ready to hear this yeah exactly she uh, and she you know that's the thing she had this in in my mind I don't think this is like an error like she did have this tremendous intelligence and it had like a direction um, and, you know, apparently she actually did what we would call research on like certain um, treatments, especially for a kind of skin condition that people in her own family had. So, you know, she, I, I, I think of her as one of those people who's not going to be thinking, um, well, I have this knowledge, but they probably don't want it. She's just thinking, well, this is, this is worthy. This is worthwhile. And, uh, and of course, that's like a great way to get tangled up in people's kind of fantasies and frustrations about sort of what's going wrong in their life. Yeah. And then tell me a little bit about the structure, because of course, the other thing is, as you said, um, she's illiterate. And so her story is mostly told by her neighbor, Simon, her guardian, quote unquote. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that's sort of... Um, that structure kind of leapt out at me from a detail in the historical record. I found um, 
you know, one of the things that I love about reading histories is it's certain things kind of almost feel like those little uh, magic sponges that, you know, you drop them in water and you get like a big dinosaur or whatever it is. It was a <laughs> There was a tiny detail about how, so a woman couldn't represent herself in court. She had to have a legal guardian. There had to be a male. And it actually wasn't, um, and there's this moment in the historical record where her legal guardian asks the court to be excused from his position. And it just seemed to me, I just thought how, actually how, how enormous a moment that is. Um, and, and he sort of says, you know, I'm old and I, I don't think I'm the right person to do this anymore. But that moment really left out at me. And I actually, in some ways, really connected that position. He's sort of the bystander yeah. uh, to this, you know, to, to a travesty and a tragedy. And I think a lot of us are, you know, you know, sometimes the tornado like hits your the house next door and it doesn't hit your house. And that's a sort of interesting position as well. So I, I found myself feeling that for like a, a sense of wholeness that he wouldn't just be the person who writes things down for her, but, you know, he's taking a risk by being involved with her. What's his tolerance for it? What's he willing to spend kind of in terms of his personal capital in the town and it, that just I found that interested me in the way that uh, I'm a big fan of Kazuo Ishiguro books and I feel like they always have these <laughs> kind of ethically compromised narrators trying to figure out you know how they what story they need to tell themselves about their place in the world and what mm -hmm. kind of truth is one they're trying to avoid but that like kind of comes back for them so uh I had a lot of fun uh, and you with also, voices in the novel <laughs> you clearly had a lot of fun with the depositions because there are cutaways from from Simon's narrative and um we get to hear from so many different uh townspeople yeah I loved doing the depositions it was actually uh one of the most fun parts I mean one of the wonderful things about Kepler being a famous person is that his records are quite complete. And also I guess Germany has like a good or disturbingly good track record of like having really um, intact uh, documents. So um, you can actually sort of like find it all online, the text of um, the trial, and it's not an, a direct transcript, but I was very interested in the way that um, there's a kind of dire question that opens every deposition, sort of like basically uh, to translate it into modern language, it's sort of like, do you do you swear to tell the truth or burn forever in hell? And I just thought, wow, what a mood, what a mood setter. <laughs> um, and I and it was just a chance to think about all the minor characters in that town who were not minor to themselves at all. And um, I I love the sound of someone telling themselves a story, trying to convince themselves of something. Um, I love the sound of someone being kind of driven by their ego and kind of presenting themselves to the public in a certain way um, without quite catching on to the kind of way they leak their desires or greed or drive or shame, whatever it might be. So those depositions were a really fun way to put people under under stress and see 
what happens to them. Yeah, tell me about the voice of whoever is deposing these people. Um, because I, I, I was sort of encouraged by how they wouldn't put up with a lot of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, one thing that surprised me because it feels like from our point of view, just like so absurd to have a trial about mm -hmm. whether someone was a witch is that there was a lot of legal thinking right. um, that went into how these trials should be conducted and what was proof of evidence. And the thinking is like quite sounds they're sort of saying well there can't just be one accusation there has to be like one that sort of matches it there has to be at least two uh the situation is altered if there's a known witch relative like they've kind of worked out all the details and they, they there is uh and there's a sort of long um kind of long uh legal set of rules that that they really do try and follow i mean each little province may have its own slightly backwards way of doing it but even that they sort of then send their documents off to like a more learned group of scholars at the University of Tübingen and then they get to pass their judgment and they don't just sort of leave it to the locals which is also a way to prevent local power getting out of control with its own citizens so there were just so many like oddly comforting aspects of how there was an attempt to kind of bring a more just way of looking at this uh, problem of witches, even though everyone was taking the existence of witches as a kind of given. Right. Um, and then of course there, there are guidelines even um, as to when torture is okay to use, which is like, yeah, the stakes of that feel a little different than like so-called cancel culture today. Exactly, exactly. Like, like whether you're good and even what kind of torture is yeah. okay, like the, um, and what kind of execution is okay. I mean, it's, uh, yes, the stakes feel quite different. Yeah, the, 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 Tell me a little bit about the gunpowder, because I was fascinated <laughs> by the idea of gunpowder near the neck. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually like found like a, I actually took out or sort of left out both like both like a lot of infant mortality, because actually the Kepler family faced more deaths during that time period than I included in the novel because it was so overwhelming. And I also sort of front loaded so that it would feel almost comic, like some of the actual, like awful, awful violence um, of the time, which people were really interested in and which was kind of distributed in kind of little reader, little readerly pamphlets you could learn about. Um, so, so there were a lot of horrible things and it was viewed as a mercy um, to put gunpowder on the neck when they burned a witch because then she wouldn't have to suffer the entire burning, but instead would be, there would be an explosion that would sort of um, more mercifully uh, put her out. So yes. uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, that again is one of those things where you see, you see these basically ethical efforts, like that's an ethical in intervention, yeah. even as it's like an atrocity and a horror. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about humor. And, and how you inject your own kind of uh, sensibility into this 
story from the 16th, uh, the 17th century. Yeah. Well, you know, um, for years now, uh, like I'm not like a funny person in, in, in like at, at dinner or whatever, <laughs> but like I do, I like value humor as kind of like almost like the highest, I can't think of like a higher kind of truth assessment. Like no one can fake um, a laugh and a laugh is usually like, is often registering something is incorrect, is like something is wrong. So it's like a way of accurately locating where the error is or where the discomfort is. So I kind of really, really value humor. And for years, I've been teaching a course called um, Comedy and Calamity. And all we do is read texts where um, we read the Laurie Moore story about a baby with cancer and it's a hilarious story. Um, Or, you know, we read Catch-22, which is about World War II and it's extremely funny. In fact, it's almost like stand-up. We read Paul Beatty's The Sellout. Uh, which covers almost like every single atrocity uh, currently going on in American so snappy. culture. Yeah, and it's snappy and like it's so it's so funny. So I sort of feel like it's almost um, when the when the issue that's being dealt with is it's almost as if like the more um, catastrophic the situation, the more humor is like a necessary corrective to beautiful writing or something that kind of might obscure something. Um, it's like a more human way of like transforming something but holding on to what's really there. So you actually get like a clear vision, but a vision that like a human can take in because you can't just like process like straightforward horrible things. There's like a wall that like the psyche puts up so it's almost like humor is the like costume to get in um so that was just important to me and it's also as important to me as a part of what I saw as her you know her intelligence and her relative indifference to social norms Mm -hmm. so I felt like those two things together meant that sometimes she was witty on purpose and sometimes she was you know funny in what she said or did because it violated the social norms around her and maybe she wasn't even being deliberately funny but she just she just is that figure yeah I loved seeing that world through her eyes Rivka tell me about some books you'd like to recommend yeah you know I have um, been going through a strange again like comfort reading phase Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and Uh, I was actually just thinking about this because it used to be when I wanted sort of like to touch something that made me like read a book that just always like made me feel sort of on or electric. I would I would almost always turn to uh, The Third Policeman by Flann O'Brien, which is just like a book that's forever meaningful to me, um, or The Pillow Book by Seishon again, which is also just like always rich, always fresh, always new for me. So those are two books that like have always been kind of like companions um and also uh the title is translated in different ways but epitaph for a small winner by Machado de Assis which is one of these novels in these short chapters um that are like almost mini essays and funny so those are like three books that are like eternally comfort um and like a source of energy for me but then I've also been 
reading basically mysteries because the series has a comfort too, right? Because you just get the same characters again and again. So I've been reading like a lot of Rick Stout mysteries, which Mm -hmm. take place um, actually like three blocks from where I live. So there's that kind of thrill (laughs) um, of that, of of reading about a New York from another, another time. Uh, And I've been going back to uh, the Victorian novelist, Wilkie Collins, um, who writes, who wrote, some, you know, some, there's a thousand things that are the first mystery or whatever, but the right. Moonstone and the Woman in White and right. just kind of going back to those books. So that's sort of been my comfort reading. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Maris. It's been so fun to talk to you. You too. Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch by Rivka Galchin. Go get it now. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.